And this morning, we're focused on the Advent theme of joy. We're going to uh, turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Uh, take your Bibles and turn there, would you please? Take your sermon note sheets and, uh, and uh, prepare to study God's Word with us. And um, uh, let's pray before we start digging in the Word. Lord, we're really conscious that uh, your word is light and life for us. We are also very conscious that your Holy Spirit works through the truth of this text. I thank you for inspiring the words that are on the page. And we ask you now to work in our minds and hearts and inspire it to our lives. Because our hearts and our lives are open to you. We want to hear your word for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus for uh, coming so many years ago as our Savior, for bringing to us life that you have promised was not only eternal, but abundant and free. And we want to experience all of that in our personal lives, today and always. So Lord, uh, in this moment, as we are looking to you, we pray, speak to us. Your children are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis was an amazing thinker and one of the most brilliant minds of the early 20th century. If you've read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia or seen the videos of that marvelous story, you'll know the name C.S. Lewis, a literary genius. In his young life, however, he wandered away from Christianity and in his 20s and 30s as a result of really the sectarian wars between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, he became a committed argumentative atheist. He would paradoxically later describe how angry he was at God for not existing. It was as though uh, it was through a faithful friendship uh, with the great fantasy writer J.R.R. Tolkien, think The Hobbit, think Lord of the Rings. It was through that friendship that he was brought to faith in Christ. And Lewis described his conversion this way, I was brought into Christianity like a prodigal, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. Surprised by joy is how C.S. Lewis described his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book and also his testimony because he had never expected that there was any connection between God and joy. If anything, he thought it would be the opposite. For all I knew, he wrote, uh, the total rejection of what I call joy might be one of the demands for being a Christian. He'd thought that being a Jesus follower ruined your life and robbed it of joy. And it was a shocking realization and a wonderful discovery that life with Jesus was exactly what he had been created for, and he was surprised by joy. What I want you to know this morning, you too were created for a relationship with God. Your life can be interrupted and overtaken by joy. 
If you haven't discovered a relationship with the living Jesus, an overwhelming joy awaits you. And if you have been a believer for years, joy can flood your heart anew as you commit to him and let God direct your life and your journey. C.S. Lewis wasn't certainly the first to be surprised by joy. Luke Two is a great text where we read the announcement of the coming of the Savior. And in telling the gospel, the birth of Jesus, the first hearers were surprised by joy. So many wonderful things happened the night Jesus was born. There are lots of real surprises. We've heard the story so much that we overlook the most amazing things. But let's read it again, Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to him, Fear not. For, behold, for unto you is born this day, uh, oh, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told them by the concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, one of the biggest surprises would have been those who heard about it first. The angels went to sing their joy to the shepherds on a nearby hillside. Now, of course, that doesn't surprise us. We know the story. But to those in Jesus' day, it would have been surprising, if not shocking. Why? Well, let's put it this way. Shepherds were not highly thought of in Jesus' day. 
They weren't farmers or ranchers like today. They were a rough and rowdy bunch of people. They didn't have nice homes, places to stay. They lived in tents. They slept by the fire. Even today in Israel, Jewish folks aren't shepherds. That's beneath them. That's a job for Palestinians and Bedouins, nomadic people groups who really are the lower class in Israel. In Jesus' day, Jews did shepherd, but they weren't respected or valued. In fact, most Jews didn't think much of the keepers of the flock. Jewish religion required a number of daily washings and careful food preparations, but shepherds couldn't be bothered with all of that and still get their work done. Sheep herding was a dirty and messy business, not a very noble profession, but it was to shepherds that the news first came. If Christ were born today, I'd expect maybe the first stop of the angels would be the White House or, or certainly to the headquarters of CNN, but certainly not to a handful of rowdy, dirty old shepherds. And you find this kind of strange upside-downness often in the gospel. So much happens different from what we humans would expect. It's upside down from our expectations. One of my favorite Bible teachers likes to call it the upside-down kingdom. And he wrote a whole series of messages on the kingdom parables that he called the values of the upside-down kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is radically upside down from what humans would tend to expect. What would you call a kingdom where enemies are loved? That's upside down. What would you call a kingdom where the last gets in first? Where the greatest of all is the servant of all? Jesus is constantly shocking our expectations, and it begins in his birth. It tells us a lot about the heart of God, where the angels first came singing. The good news of great joy, this surprising gospel announcement, came first to the poor and lowly, not the wealthy and mighty. I love to think about that. In our world, maybe even more than in Jesus' day, who you are is defined by what you've got, how you dress, where you live, how much influence and power you hold. That's important to define who you are in our world. In Acts 10, Peter preached, and he says, God is no respecter of persons. Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 2. God is no respecter of persons. In today's language, that means God shows no favoritism. What you own, what you wear, how important your job means nothing to God. You might not be much by the world's standards but let me tell you, you matter to God. You see, God doesn't appraise people the way humans do. 
In our world today, the brand of your jeans seems important. The model of your car seems to matter. The size of your home gets judged. The college you went to, or if you went, where you fit on the leadership pyramid at work, whether in school you get A's or C's, if you're in this clique or that clique, and all of that shows just how superficial and worldly our thinking can be. Our values are not right. There's the in crowd and there's the out crowd. Does any of that really matter? Not to God. His values seem upside down. Jesus said, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. James 2.5 says this in the message paraphrase. It ought to be clear that God operates quite differently. He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here's why. Proverbs 22.2, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. James Boyce says, from the perspective of Christ, we are all poor. We are all underprivileged. We are all nobodies. But God loves nobodies. His heart is bent toward the underprivileged. He loves to prove to the masters of this world that he'd rather work with people who know they aren't much. He can do something with people who know they aren't much. Regardless of what others may think or even what you think about you, you matter to God. He loves you and that the angels came first to smelly, unappreciated shepherds. You can know that he cares for you regardless of what anyone else may think. There's something more to be said. The joyful news came to the spiritually needy, not to the religiously respectable. These were shepherds. There's no way they could keep all the right religious rules the preachers and the scholars required. God is drawn to the needy. God demonstrated it first by coming to those shepherds. And all his ministry long, Jesus would say things like, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I tell you, there's more re rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus came to save sinners. And aren't you glad? We said this last Sunday, there's not a one of us that can impress God with our goodness because every one of us is a sinner. How many sins does it take to make a man a sinner? Just one. Only one. 
And if the only sin you ever did was to steal a cookie from mom's cookie jar, you're it. And every sinner needs a Savior. I'm not so bad, we'd like to say. But big sinner or little sinner, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. You too. Because under the gaze of a perfect God, you don't look impressive at all. We need to be rescued. I love to think of the gospel as the great exchange. Jesus, who never once sinned, went to a cross, capital punishment of his day, and there he died, not for his sins, but for mine. And if by faith I will trust him with my life and welcome him as my Savior, he will give me his holiness in the place of my sinfulness as he takes my sin. He gives me his purity. And Jesus first demonstrated that he loves sinners, that he came to save sinners. His first demonstration of that was when the message of joy came to the shepherds. People who absolutely could not keep the rules of religious purity. The good news, the joyful news, is that Jesus came to rescue sinners like them, us. Us. And maybe you've thought you need to clean up your act before you can give your life to Jesus. Lots of people want to stall and delay till they overcome that habit or have gotten their lives straightened out. But listen, the news came to shepherds in part to tell you that God accepts you just as you are. He loves you just as you are, but too much to leave you that way. Let him do the work of putting your life right. He'll do it better anyway. You can come to him just as you are. And one more thing. The angels came and the goodness of great joy came to the responsive instead of to the satisfied. Matthew's gospel tells us that the news of Jesus' birth eventually made it to the halls of the palace, to the classrooms of the scholars. But not a single one of them came to find a Savior. Even the Bible scholars who knew the Bible and said it was Bethlehem where he was to be born, even they stayed home. The shepherds said, let's go and see this thing that God has told us about. It's not like they didn't have other things to do. Shepherds would typically leave their, never leave their sheep, never leave their livelihood, because their livelihood was wrapped up in the wool and the meat of the herd. Sheep are vulnerable and need protecting. Wild animals were always marauding and hunting. Shepherds don't even go home this time of year. They sleep by the fire and sleep with the flock, keeping watch. But this was an angel chorus. And this was a word from God. 
Messiah is here. We've got to go see. And listen, you need to know that God does amazing work in the lives of people who are open, who are responsive, who want to know what God has in store, people who are all smug and set, people who have their lives all boundaried and contained, nothing shakes them loose, and God will let you be there if you want. Christian, this is for you. God has more for you than you have yet experienced. He has more for you. God has greater for you than you've let yourself taste. Isn't there a yearning in your heart to taste it all? Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it. I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And he's not talking about heaven. He's talking here about what we can experience here and now in an adventurous life with God. He's quoting what Isaiah said about walking with God. Since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Have you tasted and seen all God has for you? Not even close. There is so much more. If you hunger for him and long to taste the fulfillment of his will for you, the great things he's planned for you, there's more. But you've got to be open. You've got to respond when God wants to lead you on. This life is an amazing adventure when you're hungry to taste the parts of God's plan that you haven't tasted yet. Even for an old man like me. God, what more have you got for me? What's next? Pastor Brian and I were preparing this last week for the message and for the service. and I, I told Brian I had a few moments of self-pity this last week, just whining. And you ever been there? You know, just kind of whining. And I was saying, why did I sign up for this? Why can't I just enjoy my retirement? That lasted about 30 seconds. Are you kidding me? I get to watch God work in people's lives. I get to work with churches in a very critical time in their history as they get healthy and as they find their next pastor. This is pretty grand. And I don't think I've seen the best of it yet. I'm really excited about what God is going to do in our process here at Lakewood. It's going to be grand. Listen, church, the best is yet to be. You haven't seen how God can heal a church and revitalize a ministry, you stick around. 
He's got more for us because the best is yet to be. William Carey was famous for saying, the future is as bright as the promises of God. There's better ahead. Let's go and see this thing that God has told us about. Are you responsive to the invitation to come adventuring with the Savior? The shepherds responded. They came and joy so flooded their lives that they absolutely couldn't keep it quiet. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered, were in awe at what the shepherds told them. The good news of great joy came to the responsive, not the satisfied. And my friend, today, if you have never begun life's greatest adventure, walking life with Jesus, I want to invite you to give him your heart and dedicate your life to that purpose. If you've never trusted Christ by faith, you have yet to discover what life is really about. You can be surprised by joy. You say, done that, pastor. Did that years ago. I asked Christ to save me, and I'm sure of eternity. Well, here's my question for you. Are you adventuring with God as you do life today? Are you aware of his presence directing you and leading you? Are you letting him interrupt the course of and flow of your typical life to draw you into those surprising supernatural adventures he has for you? Are you letting yourself be surprised by joy? The great evangelist Billy Sunday once said, if there's no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity. That's pretty good. If there's no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity. But I would suggest to you that joy comes in the adventure of following the Lord. Listen for his voice. And then do what he says. How many of you have read uh, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby? A lot of you have. Uh, it includes the truth that God is always pursuing an intense personal relationship with you and that he invites you into his work. That's reality number three. And reality seven you come to know God deeply by experience as you obey him and as he accomplishes work through you. Blackaby might have added that there's no greater joy and no greater adventure than partnering with God in his work. It's amazing. You know, we can get so distracted by jobs and family and responsibilities and hobbies and recreation and all that stuff, we can get so preoccupied with that, we kind of lose track on where is God? What does he really want from my life? Where are the, where's the joy? 
Where are the surprises? Where's the adventure? And let me just tell you that when you start to define your Christian life by primarily by the doctrines you believe and the Bible you know or how your behavior is holier than others, you'll be missing out on the genuine joyful part of Christianity. Because that's in your daily walk and your talking relationship with Jesus. The adventure is in the journey. Lord, what's next? You can know him that way. You can communicate with him that way. You can enjoy him that way. God, here's what I know about your word. Here's what I know about who you are. But what does that mean in what you want for me today? What does that mean in how you are directing my life? God, if you've got something to say to me about what's coming up in this day, I'm open. I want to hear it because I want it all. Dallas Willard, the wonderful evangelical philosopher and discipler, has said this about God. God is the most joyful being in the universe. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. Jesus was and is a joyously creative person. He does not allow us to continue thinking of our Father who fills and overflows a space as morose and miserable monarch, a frustrated and petty parent, or a policeman on the prowl. One cannot think of God in such ways while confronting Jesus' declaration, He that has seen me has seen the Father. One of the most outstanding features of Jesus' personality was precisely an abundance of joy. My question to you this morning where is your joy? If that's what God is like, and I believe it is, what would life be like doing life in fellowship with him? I want that for you. God wants that for you. And you want that for you. Good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, all the people. I want your joy, Lord, for all the people. We rejoice. We're glad that you came to give us life abundant and rich and free and fulfilling. You've promised us joy, and we want it all. In Jesus' name, amen.